He has in his total mastery of the literary as well as the pictorial art only one peer, Wyndham Lewis. Their aims in both arts could not be more dissimilar, but Peake and Lewis come together in an approach to descriptive writing which owes a great deal to the draftsman's trade. If their books seem slow-moving, that is because of the immense solidity of their visual contents, the lack of interest in time, and the compensatory obsession with filling up space. Titus Groan is aggressively three-dimensional. Look at the opening description of Gormengast, where the term, a certain ponderous architectural quality, exactly conveys what we are in for. But around the solidity is an extra dimension, one of magic, showing the poet as well as the draftsman. This tower, patched unevenly with black ivy, arose like a mutilated finger from among the fists of knuckled masonry and pointed blasphemously at heaven. This sounds like Gothic writing, but the term is inadequate. As we read Titus Groan, we seem to be given clues directing us towards the daylight of a literary category, but all the keys change into red herrings. Take the names of the characters, for instance. Nettel, the octogenarian who lived in the tower above the rusting armory. Rotkod, curator of the Hall of the Bright Carvings. Flay, Swelter, Steerpike, Mrs. Slag, Prune Squalor. These are fitting for a peacock novel, for Dickens, or for a comic children's story. They are farcical, but the mood is not one of easy laughter, or even of airy fantasy. The ponderous architectural quality holds everything down, and we have to take the characters very seriously, despite their names. Nor is it appropriate to think in terms of a gallery of glorious eccentrics, a very British concept. Nobody flies away from a centre of normality. Everybody belongs to a system built on very rigid rules. The estate of Gormengast is sustained by tradition and ritual. Lord Sepulcrave, the father of Titus, is instructed daily by Sourdust, lord of the library, in the acts he must perform. These are laid down in ancient books. The exact times, the garments to be worn for each occasion, and the symbolic gestures to be used. The whole ritualistic system is only properly understood by sourdust. The technicalities demanding the devotion of a lifetime, though the sacred spirit of tradition implied by the daily manifestations was understood by all. This same sacred spirit operates at all levels. Thus the great kitchen is kept clean by eighteen men called the grey scrubbers, automata, whose calling is predestined and hereditary. But it is out of this kitchen that a revolutionary force emerges, the youth, Steerpike, who, on his own admission, has a disrespectful nature. He calls the Countess of Groan, that great lady who lives in a sea of white cats, the old bunch of rags. He even calls the sun the old treacle bun. Pulling the legs off a stag beetle, slowly, one by one, he says, Equality is the great thing. Equality is everything. The worn-out radical arguments sound fresh and sinister in this closed world. 
Don't you think it's wrong if some people have to work all their lives for a little money to exist on, while others never do any work and live in luxury? Steerpike is one of the destroyers. He burns the library, killing its lord and sending Titus's father mad. There is a season of violence and murder. But Gormengast remains, and the warden of the immemorial rites proclaims Titus its seventy-seventh earl. The book ends with its titular hero not yet two years old, but there is plenty of time for him. We have finished a mere third of the tripartite epic. And it is as we near the end of Titus Grown that we realize the propriety of applying the term epic in an exact sense. The book is closer to ancient pagan romance than to traditional British fiction. The doomed ritual lord, the emergent...